quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Whistleblower warning, Facebook is accused of putting profit before public good. Ever grand, ever smaller, the Chinese giant's property management business may be up for sale and prices pumped. OPEC Plus to discuss oil output in the face of recent price spikes. It's Monday, let's make a move. A warm welcome once again to First Move. We've got another jam-packed show for you this Monday. A Facebook whistleblower stuns and shocks. Crisis plagued Evergrande thinking outside the box, perhaps. And despite chip shortages, Tesla's quarterly sales are, well, like Goldilocks. And as for stocks, US futures, well, they're under a bit of pressure after Friday's October oomph. Perhaps it's a bit of October oops that we're seeing in the markets, at least pre-market this morning. And with good reason, let's be clear, U.S. Congress is still not delivering. It continues its debt ceiling dithering. And China's Evergrande crisis, of course, as I've mentioned a couple of times now, still simmering. And we've got the latest on that. Hong Kong's Hang Seng fell more than 2% to one-year lows as the massive developer's fate still hangs in the balance. Evergrande shares were halted for trading as we anticipate some sort of cash-raising deal that could stave off a market default. We have, as I mentioned, the latest on that coming right up. Tesla is a rare bright spot Monday with shares up more than 3% pre-market. An electrifying, let's call it that, third quarter for Musk and company. The firm delivering more than 240,000 cars to customers. That, in fact, is an all-time record. Compare and contrast with some of the legacy U.S. auto giants like GM and Stellantis. Both saw big sell declines in the quarter amid the worsening supply chain crisis. We'll be taking a closer look at the EV landscape with the CEO of Volvo's Polestar unit later in the show. Volvo also announcing that it will take Polestar public via a SPAC deal. Plus, the state of the autonomous driving sector with the CEO of industry leader Aurora. We've got lots of Monday room as we rev up to the trading week. Let's get to the drivers. Fresh revelations in an expose of financial secrets and offshore dealings published by the International Consortium of Investigative investigative journalists. It names dozens of heads of state, public officials and politicians. This series of reports are based on nearly 12 million confidential files referred to as the Pandora Papers. Claire Sebastian joins us now and it really is Pandora's box, Claire. Let's be clear. And we're already seeing responses from some of those individuals whose names have appeared. Talk us through this investigation and what we know so far. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack, Julia. This is a huge investigation. It took the ICIJ more than two years, uh, more than almost 12 million confidential files, as you say, from 14 uh, offshore service providers, uh, 91 uh, different countries and territories. But but I want to start 
in Pakistan in particular, because this is an area where this is particularly politically sensitive. Don't forget that the previous uh, reporting of this kind, known as the Panama Papers, actually helped unseat the former prime minister, Nawaz Sharif. Now, the Washington Post is reporting that, that what's been found in the Pandora Papers does not implicate his successor, Imran Khan, who, of course, ran as the anti-corruption antidote uh, to his predecessor. But the ICIJ says that it does implicate several people in his inner circle, one of his ministers, it says, a top donor who funded his party, Uh, and this is the response from Prime Minister Imran Khan. He tweeted, my government will investigate all our citizens mentioned in the Pandora Papers. And if any wrongdoing is established, we will take appropriate action. I call on the international community, he says, to treat this grave injustice as similar to the climate change crisis. So he's clearly sending a message that this will not be tolerated. Uh, but it goes beyond that. Uh, over in Jordan, uh, Julia, Prime, uh, King Abdullah II, Jordan's King Abdullah II, some pretty damning allegations here from the ICIJ. They say that He purchased 14 homes worth more than $106 million in the UK and the US through front companies registered in tax havens. Now, obviously, on the face of that, that's not illegal. But, but, but this is a system now that's being exposed in these papers of the ways that these global leaders can sort of hide money and move it through these tax havens. He apparently uh, had lawyers and accountants in Switzerland and the British Virgin Islands who formed shell companies uh, and, and made plans to shield his name from public view. Now, this is what the, the Jordan's Royal Hashemite Court said in response. They said, it's no secret that His Majesty owns a number of apartments and residences in the United States and the United Kingdom. This is not unusual nor improper. These properties, they say, are not publicized out of security and privacy concerns and not out of secrecy or an attempt to hide them, as this, these reports have claimed. Any allegations, they say, that link these private properties to public funds or assistance are baseless and deliberate attempts to distort facts. But of course, questions being asked here because Jordan, one of the poorest countries in the region and heavily dependent on international aid. But it's not uh, obviously, you know, all in, in, in poorer or developing countries. There's a, there's a report that's come out of this about the former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, Julia. According to the BBC, which was one of the partners on this investigation, The, the Blairs, Tony and Cherie Blair, his wife, avoided paying over $400,000 worth in stamp duty. That's a property tax that you have to pay when you buy a property uh, in the UK. They did that, according to the BBC, by buying an offshore firm that actually owned this property. Uh, that, that, again, not illegal, but, but again, not a good look, because, of course, when he was prime minister, Tony Blair sort of made a, made a, made a, made a big part of his, his sort of political agenda was, was, was a fairer tax system, raising taxes to fund welfare uh, and things like that. that is, this is the response from Cherie Blair that is, uh, according to the BBC, she says, it is not unusual for a commercial office building to be held in a corporate vehicle or for vendors of such property not to want to dispose of the property separately. She continues, all of the arrangements were made for the express purpose of bringing the company and the building back into the UK tax and regulatory regime where it has remained ever since. All taxes have been paid ever since and all accounts openly filed in accordance with the law. Again, not illegal to avoid tax, but all of this is a politically sensitive issue for the people implicated in these reports, Julia. There is so much there. I mean, you made the point that this is, of course, what global tax authorities are looking at. You have to separate what's legal and what is illegal. And of course, in many cases, we don't know that yet. And that's going to take further time to investigate. And utilizing these offshore entities is not illegal. The big question will be, and the investigation obviously will come to this, is whether 
fraudsters, money launderers, tax evaders are using those for nefarious purposes. And you have to separate the two. But I think what it does come down to, Claire, as well, is that for wealthier people, they have the ability legally to use these kind of resources, whereas for the less wealthy, this is something that they can't use. Yeah, you know, and I think uh, if you look back at the Panama Papers, Julia, it really took years to to sort out some of the legal issues there. Cases, I think, are still being filed. People uh, have been convicted this year, even uh, as a result of this. The political implications of that, as I said, were were extreme. You know, in Pakistan, of course, the the former prime minister was the the investigations arising from the the Panama Papers helped unseat him. There were public protests uh, in several countries. But I think the issue here, alongside the legal uh, implications of this, are the moral ones. We live in a time of global tax reform. And I think the, the question that arises from this is, even though these these systems that these 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 leaders, these politicians, and other people used, even though they are legal, the question I think is, should they be? And that is something that is is a serious subject of discussion in this this global tax reform that's that's ongoing at the moment, Julia. Yeah, take the morals out, tighten up the legislation and the rules surrounding it, and then no one has to uh, make the choice themselves. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. To your point, and I agree with you. See you in a few years to discuss the end game here or the ongoing story. Thank you for that. In Hong Kong, trading in embattled Chinese property giant Evergrande were halted pending a major deal. Chinese state media reporting a rival real estate developer is planning to buy a majority stake in Evergrande's property management unit for more than $5 billion. Stephen Jang is live in Beijing with more. Stephen, great to have you with us. What more do we know about this potential deal? Well, Julia, this potential asset sale to a Beijing-based Hong Kong-listed Hobson development is not entirely surprising given that Evergrande itself revealed in a stock exchange filing last month that it was trying to but failed to sell parts of this subsidiary and other business units. So it seems now they have finally found a suitable buyer. Now, this potential move, of course, can be seen in different ways. On one hand, of course, it could inject much-needed cash to uh, this alien conglomerate, as you said, more than $5 billion dollars. Uh, of, of, uh, of the money. Now, that, of course, is a substantial amount, but still a, a drop in the bucket given the total liabilities of the company, of course, over uh, $300 billion. That's why some analysts are already saying this kind of transactions, offloading assets, may not be sufficient. What the company should focus on is to get construction going again, uh, going again at its uh, developments as well as selling its inventory. And, of course, the potential pricing of this deal, uh, even at $5 billion, represents a 17% discount discount to the uh, uh, listing valuation of this subsidiary as of uh, December 2020. So this, of course, could really rekindle broader concerns about China's property sector, which, as you know, accounts for uh, more than 7% of GDP and the overall economy if Evergrande is uh, liquidated at low prices. Now, if we look beyond the headlines, though, all of this, all of this, these potential moves really uh, seems to indicate we are not going to see a wholesale government bailout of Evergrande. Instead, we're going to see more and more of these uh, piecemeal workouts with the government really standing in the back but prodding both state-owned and private uh, private companies to purchase assets from Evergrande with a focus on uh, really making payments to or uh, reaching settlements with uh, individual home buyers and retail investors because obviously this is very much in line with President Xi Jinping's common prosperity theme in terms of helping the masses but also uh, really addressing the government's top priority which is always uh, maintaining 
maintaining social stability. And these retail inv uh, investors and the small-time uh, home buyers, of course, are the ones who have been turning up to a protest at Evergrande offices throughout China in the past few weeks. Julia. Yeah, and the piecemeal sale makes more sense to me as well. I mean, you don't want to just sell the whole thing off, even if it goes to a state-owned enterprise, because you're not diversifying the risk among companies either. So we shall see. Stephen Jag in live there from Beijing for us. Thank you for that. OK, the man who represents the world's airlines says fully vaccinated passengers should be allowed to travel internationally without restrictions. Willie Walsh, the former head of British Airways owner IAG, says the risk doesn't exist and questions the ongoing need for older restrictions like mask mandates. Richard Quest joins me now. Richard, great to have you on the show. That's a pretty bold call. I mean, we know the airline industry is saying, look, at some point you have to let vaccinated people travel and remove some of these restrictions. But to the point of removing masks, wowzers. Yes, I think what Willie Walsh's point is, and here at the aviation conference, IATA, in Boston, which is the first time that they've managed to come together as an industry since the pandemic. So there's a lot of relief that at least they've been able to get here and do some business. And what Willie's point is really essentially, they want to make sure that all the restrictions that have been put in place eventually and at the proper time are removed. Willie Walsh will point to some restrictions that were put in after 9-11 that are no longer relevant but nobody wants to get rid of them. And Julia, if you look at the losses of the airline industry, well, obviously, 2020 was an absolutely horrendous year for losses. Uh, the numbers just been shown by, uh, by Willie Walsh show over 138 billion last year. Now, things are getting better this year. They're only going to lose 52 billion. Next year, maybe 12. But in terms of profits, you're really looking at 23, 24, 25 before this industry will make money. And with that in mind, Mind, Willie Walsh said it's time to consider every restriction, whether it's still relevant, and if it's not, get rid of it. We want recognition of the fact that people who are fully vaccinated shouldn't be restricted when they're traveling internationally. The, the risk doesn't exist. So uh, you know, we also need people to recognize that measures that were put in place, and I will accept may have been reasonable and understandable at the beginning are no longer relevant today and therefore they should be removed. So, you know, if you don't have to wear a mask when you're sitting in a car, why should you have to wear a mask sitting on an airplane? You know, there comes a point when you have to look at the data and say it's no longer necessary to take this measure and therefore it should be removed. And that's what we want. We want people to reassess the risk and when no longer relevant to remove the restrictions. Uh, Julia, if you take the industry, the U.S. is growing gangbusters on the domestic market. Asia is still in a terrible situation. Australia is going to open up uh, sort of mid-November. But the big thing for the industry at the moment is the U.S. opening up to westbound travel, to Europeans uh, and to transit travel out of Europe. That is expected in early November. I can tell you here... CEOs of airlines, Julia, have the, have the closest that you will see to a smile on their faces at the prospect of a normality to transatlantic travel or something approaching. Yeah, I'm trying not to smile myself. The prospect of being able to go home for Christmas and come back without uh, having to quarantine somewhere else is yes. highly appealing. Yes. Richard, yeah. thank you very much. I know you talked about climate too, and I'm sure that conversation will continue on Quest Business this evening. And we look forward to that as well. Thank you for joining us. 
Okay, putting profits over public good. That accusation against Facebook was made by a whistleblower in a bombshell interview with CBS 60 Minutes. One of the consequences of how Facebook is picking out that content today is it is optimizing for content that gets engagement or reaction. But its own research is showing that content that is hateful, that is divisive, that is polarizing, it's easier to inspire people to anger than it is to other emotions. Facebook has realized that if they change the algorithm to be safer, people will spend less time on the site, they'll click on less ads, they'll make less money. Facebook calls her claims misleading. Brian Stelter joins me now with more. Brian, fascinating, fascinating documentary on 60 Minutes. Also, in light of the conversation you had as well with Facebook's Nick Clegg yesterday, and you were debating all of these things too. And I think one of the things that cuts to the heart of it was what happened on January the 6th and perhaps the role that Facebook played in being utilized as a resource for galvanizing some of the anger. Talk about that exchange in particular, and then we'll talk more broadly about Facebook's own research into the impact that they have. Yeah, there's increasingly this consensus of Facebook. Within Facebook, there's this giant, mostly right-wing rage machine running in the United States, uh, causing more and more resentment and rage and anger. And, and that's the kind of thing that then propels people to raid the Capitol. Now, that's one example. But this whistleblower is calling out Facebook around the world, citing ethnic violence in Myanmar as another example of Facebook causing strife in the United States and all around the world. What is so striking, Julie, is that we've heard these criticisms from outsiders for years. We've heard vicious critics of Facebook call the company out. But now this is someone from inside the house saying the exact same things. And Francis is not the first Facebook whistleblower, but I think she is the loudest to date. She leaked thousands of documents to the Wall Street Journal and provided them to Congress. She's going to be testifying before the Senate tomorrow. So what is Facebook saying? Well, Nick Clegg, the top spokesman, said to me, look, this research, we're going to keep doing this research. We're going to keep looking for our flaws and trying to fix them. He says that's a good thing. I think this is a good example of the company doing exactly what I hope people would expect we should do, which is not pretending that everything is perfect on social media. It isn't. Researching where there are the minority of instances where it's not working out right for people and then trying to, to, to fix it as much as we can on our own apps. So he's trying to concede a little bit, but not give in on the main points. Meanwhile, you've got this whistleblower saying Facebook puts profit over public safety time and time again. And we're talking about apps that people are, frankly, addicted to. You know, the, the, the big tobacco comparison keeps coming up, Julia. But I think a casino comparison is also apt. They're making lots and lots of money while the rest of us roll the dice, spin the wheel, hope for a fun interaction. And, uh, you know, to see someone from the inside calling this out in such stark terms uh, does have significant consequences. Yeah, it was the, it was the quote that um, I heard that she, when she said, no one at Facebook is malevolent. Well, that's good. Uh, the incentives are misaligned. I mean, the, the right. sort of understatement. But this is what you and I have talked about many times. The, the incentives are misaligned here and they will continue to make profits. And all the things that we're saying, look, is perhaps bad and detrimental to society about Facebook is how it helps them bring advertisers and how the business model works ultimately. But I think one of the things, and I, I sort of mentioned it there as well with, with January the 6th, was the fact that they had this um, civic integrity team Mm -hmm. heading into the president elections. And then that was dissolved or, as Facebook says, they were absorbed into to other teams. But then they were removing some of the election protection measures as well. So instead of looking at this as a, a one 
issue, but it's a cumulative thing across all different nations in other elections and things. It seems like they did it for a brief period of time to seemingly be able to say they're doing it. And then it and then it was dissolved. It's like, how consistent is their attention to actually taking action to address some of these issues, even acknowledging right. these issues? It speaks to this notion that they, they are aware of the threats on the platform. They have the ability to turn the volume right. down. And they've showed that a couple of times. They can turn the volume down and, 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 and remove some of the hyper-partisan content and show people less crazy stuff in their feeds. But then they allow the volume to be, to be risen again. And the defense from Clegg is always the same, that this is a reflection of human nature. This is human behavior. This is what people want, you know, that we are a complicated species. But Facebook is the world's biggest accelerant, and uh, there's an increasing consensus about the problems. The question then becomes the solutions, and Facebook says it's making improvements, and it works on you know, these issues, for example, with Instagram with teen girls, working on nudges to remind people to move away from content that makes them feel bad about themselves. But a little nudge, a little nudge in the arm is not going to be enough to solve these deep-rooted issues. So where are we going to end up? We're going to end up in a conversation about regulation again. And Facebook claims they want regulation. They spend millions of dollars on ads in D.C. saying, hey, Congress, hey, please regulate us. Please give us some rules of the road. That's what the whistleblower says she wants, too. But there's not going to be an agreement on what kinds of regulation. And historically, we've seen businesses uh, try to co-opt the regulatory process to get the rules of the road that they want. So I think, Julia, we're, we're entering another phase of this regulatory conversation uh, and unclear how it will play out. But you do have lawmakers now on all sides in multiple countries all infuriated with what they're hearing about right. Facebook. And that may be significant. Uh, this is a bipartisan battle right now. And it's happening all over the world. Yeah, I watched that whole conversation with Nick Clegg and you yesterday on your show, which was which great. But I did feel like it was a, a case of trying to fight a California wildfire with like my cup of water here. So I hope <laughs> the regulators were watching it, quite frankly, and need to step up and do something. Brian, great job. Thank you. Thanks. Brian Stelter there. All right, still to come here on First Move, seizing the EV moment. Volvo offshoot Polestar announces plans to list as the race to deliver electric cars well and truly heats up. And a driverless dawn, startup Aurora promises to put autonomous vehicles on the road by the end of 2023. We'll discuss. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are still on track for a mostly softer open today. A reversal of the more than 1% gains for the Dow and the S&P that we saw on Friday. The Nasdaq rising for the first time in five sessions, in fact, during Friday's session as 10-year Treasury yields dipped below that pivotal 1.5% level. Crude prices, meanwhile, continue to rise after posting their sixth straight week of gains driven by the economic recovery and accelerated demand post-COVID. Natural gas reversing course and trading higher too. In the meantime, you can see the prices there. All eyes on OPEC Plus Nations today as they meet to discuss production hikes. Rob Thummel joins us now. He's portfolio manager at Tortoise Capital. Rob, great to have you on the show and good to see you. Can you just explain before we get to OPEC Plus, what are we seeing in the energy markets, whether it's for crude prices, Brent oil or the natural gas price spikes that we've seen too? Yeah, no, hi, hi, Julie, good to see you. So broadly, globally, Obviously, we've seen the, the global economy rebound. And so you've seen global energy demand really pick up significantly. So you've seen significant increases in the need for all commodities, including, as you mentioned, crude oil and natural gas. The, the challenge for the energy market, or the world actually, is there's, the supply has, has been restrained. The US is no longer drilling for oil and gas as much as they have been in the past. 
Um, and so as the demand has increased, there's been less supply added to the market. Inventories have become depleted. So we go into the winter season with really low levels of natural gas that is used for to heat our homes throughout the winter. Um, and then we've got crude oil inventories that are actually lower as well. So we've got a got a really interesting uh, setup and, and, and a lot of uncertain times on the supply side um, as it relates to, to, to the global energy markets. I mean, there's... To your point, it's global and there's so much going on. And we seem to be talking on a daily basis about the challenges of supply, of shortages and of rising prices and the pressure that that's putting on consumers as well during this recovery. Currently, OPEC, let's bring it to them. They've said or plan to add an additional 400,000 barrels per day of new oil supply each month into 2022. What is the prospect of them coming together today and saying, hmm, maybe we can massage this a little bit, increase our supply a little bit more and ease some of the pressure and prices that we're seeing? Yeah, so, so that's a very good question. And OPEC's meeting as we speak, and there's varying reports on, on, on yes. the alternatives that they're considering. <laughs> There have been some who've said they're not even going to add any supply to the market. Now, going back to, as you highlighted, OPEC's plan has been to add 400,000 barrels a day every single month through the end of, uh, of 2022. But they meet every month and have, can decide if they want to reevaluate that. They seem to be reevaluating that because oil is more just a transportation fuel. Jet fuel has been rising, um, and, that, and that's increased demand for oil. But in general, the expectation is there's plenty of oil out there right now. Um, and then next year, we might be in an oil surplus. And so that's why OPEC's evaluating, should we be adding more oil to the market right now? Um, and so it'll, it'll be interesting to see what OPEC decides. Uh, but there is plenty of oil out there. There's plenty of available capacity. So I, from an oil perspective, I think you know, oil prices probably stabilize right around the, the levels that they are currently. I was going to ask you how sensitive we are to supply, irrespective of how much actual supply it would mean if they decide to change or not. How sensitive even just to one month if they say, look, we'll add a little bit more just uh, to be helpful for help's sake and we'll see the price react. And I guess the most important question is, do we spike higher if they don't? Yeah, it it appears so. You know, oil prices, as you highlighted, are are, are spiking a little bit this morning on that on that news that OPEC may not add any more additional production in November and then may back off that 400,000 up a percent and a half or so. So so I think the market would be surprised by that. Yeah, if the, if OPEC decides to no longer add supply to the market, because I, I guess I should be clear, OPEC is really the key driver here. They're right. the the organization that has the ability to quickly add oil supply to the market if it's needed. And the market seems to be indicating that we that the market needs more supplies so and more prices are. So if they don't add supply, yeah, the prices probably continue continue to to, to uh, go higher from, from here. Yeah, but the challenge, of course, and you've already pointed to it, is if we do see an easing of demand as we uh, head towards the back end of the year, or at least into next year, um, have they sort of overdone it with the increasing supply in the short term? It is always the delicate balancing act. What about the United States? Because clearly the United States is hearing from consumers that are saying, look, we're paying more and more to drive our cars or to um, transport goods around the country. Um, But adding drill capacity takes time and it takes capital investment. How do the shale guys respond to what we're seeing? Yeah, no, that's a very good question, and and that's the biggest change here, Julia, from the past that the, that you know most most people aren't aware of. So the U.S. because of shale oil, actually, it increased the the supply globally of oil, natural gas, all commodities, basically, predominantly oil and natural gas, though, and that had helped really keep prices, commodity prices, very very low for a, for a long period of time. Um, shale's still around, but we've entered the new era of shale, and that era of shale 
is, as you highlight, not as much capital spending. And what mm -hmm. that means is not as much production growth. And that means less supply coming from the U.S. as U.S. oil and gas producers focus on really one thing. They focus on returning cash to the shareholders. Not No longer are they focused on production growth and growing production. They're focused on getting cash back to the shareholders. And so that means less, less growth, less capital spending. Um, and so uh, you're going to have these markets that are probably going to be a little more sensitive uh, to, to the supply demand fun fundamentals at this point in time because shale's not going to be there to to really fill any supply gap for, for probably for an extended period of time. Yeah, they're being rewarded for discipline. So uh, why not behave while you're uh, while you're being rewarded for it? But of course, the implications are there in, in the market as we see it. Rob, great to get your wisdom as always. Rob Thummel there, the portfolio manager at Tortoise Capital. Great to chat to you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And as expected, a softer start to the U.S. stock trading week. The issues that sparked some pretty sizable losses for stocks in September continue to weigh on sentiment. We are just two weeks away from what appears to be a crucial debt ceiling deadline. Friday's U.S. jobs report could be strong enough to allow the Federal Reserve to begin pulling back on some pandemic-era stimulus. The question is, will they? And add to the growing uncertainty over the fate of the Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell and whether he'll be reappointed for another term. Then we've got third quarter earnings season beginning in the United States and beyond soon. Profits are expected to come in strong. But what will companies say about the outlook for the future? That's going to be key as we see inflation continue to rise and the averaging everything shortage continues, assuming I can say it. Tesla, meanwhile, rallying in early trade, as we mentioned earlier. Musk and company announcing over the weekend that they delivered more than 200,000 new vehicles in the third quarter. Record results as the company deftly navigates the chip shortage. Not all that long ago. Meanwhile, Polestar was known for tuning combustion engines. Since then, it's recast itself as a luxury electric car maker with big expansion plans. The joint venture between Volvo and China's Geely is the latest EV maker going public, announcing a special purpose acquisition company merger with an estimated value of $20 billion. And just in case you hadn't noticed, actor Leonardo DiCaprio is among the investors. Thomas Ingleuf is CEO of Polestar and he joins us now. Thomas, fantastic to have you on the show and congratulations on the future going public. You know, what makes you unique among some of the other EV companies that we've seen go public in this way, Lucid, Nikola, Lordstownism, that you've actually bought a car to market. You're actually bringing in money for cars. Um, and this is an important distinction, isn't it? Welcome. Good morning, Julia. Yeah, right. Um, you know, we met three years ago when we launched a brand, um, 2019. Remember, and, you know, <laughs> of course, since then, um, we developed a company. We have two cars out now, the Poster 1, the Poster 2. We will deliver around 29,000 cars to customers this year. So there's revenue. Um, there, there are cars delivered to customers. Our showrooms are up and running. We have a service network of 500 service places for our customers. I think that is just simply that much more of a real company. I mean, talk to me about, in addition to, as you've said, you've already got service stations up, you've got cars on the road. Um, you're also planning three new electric vehicles by 2025. Um, the showrooms and servicing of the cars that, that you sell is going to be independent, I believe, of Volvo too. So when I look at your, and I mentioned it in the introduction, your expansion plans, I sort of understand why you need to raise money and raise money quickly. Yeah, you're right. We have now really a 
strong expansion ahead of us. Three new cars in three years, um, 30 markets um, in 2003, uh, 23, sorry, up and running. This, of course, is quite um, uh, a big growth. It's very unheard of for a startup. And on one hand, why we manage that uh, from operations is, of course, because we are using, tapping into existing network, manufacturing network. We can use existing logistics for spare parts and all that. That, of course, is a big advantage of Polestar, tapping into that reservoir that we have through the group. Nevertheless, an expansion like that costs money. And, of course, having the access to the capital market and, of course, having found a great um, experienced partner in doing that through a spec is, of course, um, a great flexible opportunity for Polestar for the next era. You know, it's quite fascinating. I was trying to do the maths on this over the weekend. And you're planning to ramp up car sales by just shy of a factor of 30 times by, by 2025. Tell me where in the world you're going to be selling these cars. Can you give us a sense of where you're expecting to see greatest demand? And I guess tied to that, who is a Polestar customer in your mind? Who specifically are you selling to? Uh, about the math, um, it's tenfold. 29,000 cars in 21 this year. That's where we are very good on, on target on delivering that. So ramping up to 20, uh, 2025 to 290,000 cars, it's exactly 10 times. So still, I mean, if it's not 30, 10 times is still a, a steep ramp up. So I would not have less respect for that growth. Um, <laughs> It comes um, out of three things. I mean, one hand, uh, we talked about the three cars coming. So that's just simply having a product portfolio then of four cars uh, by 25, which is, of course, um, one of the factors to be able to do that. The other thing is we are operating already today in the three continents. We will have um, 30 markets, which is, of course, um, Big, big times Europe. Here we are very, very strong. We are ramping up this year in, in the US from four spaces that we had in the beginning. These are the showrooms to 25 showrooms. And we have more plans for 22 coming. So US will play a big role. We will be producing in the US, the Postar 3, for US customers. And of course, Asia Pacific. Um, this year mm. we opening up then South Korea. We are in Australia, New Zealand. There's the EV market. You know, when you look at it, the EV market is very much all around the world growing and we want to participate in that. And of course, that is why we are launching that product portfolio exactly in these segments where it matters. Two SUVs, um, a really gorgeous uh, GT. These are the segments where you see in the premium, of course, that is where the luxury premium segment is very rapidly changing now from combustion engine to electric cars. Yeah. And, and the buyer? Because, you know, I have to say, I look at some of the, the uh, images of these cars and I know you come from a design background as well at, at Volvo and I can see the similarities. So are you, are you sort of planning to lure Volvo customers into buying a sort of sportier, sexier Polestar car or are these potentially new customers entirely, perhaps taken, stolen from a Tesla, for example? Like, who is a Polestar customer? Yeah, you know, our our Scandinavian design is, of course, um, 
It is Scandinavian, but this is where indeed BMW, Mercedes or Audi customers as much attracted to that great design um, as may a Tesla customer might be. So design indeed is our key to can differentiator. Sustainability as well, something that we take really, really serious and dear to our heart. The question about, you know, electric is not just enough. You really have to look into the, the CO2 burden of the car and really bring, bring that um, t towards zero. Um, no, it's really having an off offer in a luxury premium segment that is that much more sporty, that much more extrovert, that much more daring as well than you would find it uh, with, with, with the Volvo brand. <laughs> extrovert. Tom, it's great to chat to you. We'll speak again soon and congratulations again on the announcement. Thomas Englath there, the CEO of Polestar. Well, it's a pleasure to be Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, up next, driving change. Polestar says the car of the future is high-tech and electric. My next guest says its driver will be too. The CEO of Aurora on its driverless technology. Next. Software and sensors may replace human drivers sooner than you think. Self-driving startup Aurora plans to have autonomous trucks on the road by late 2023 with not a safety driver in sight. Driverless passenger cars will follow a year later. According to their plans, the company's virtual driver is made up of sensors and software which are integrated into existing vehicles. FedEx, Toyota and truck maker Packer are among the big names currently testing its technology. Joining us now is Chris Ermson. He's the CEO of Aurora. Chris, fantastic to have you on the show. Just explain what makes your technology unique. Yeah, well, th thanks for having us. What we're building at Aurora is the Aurora driver, and it's this combination of software, hardware, things like the sensors and computer, uh, and then the onboard services that support that. And, and for us, really, the, the thing that makes it unique is the experience that we have as a team. Many of our folks have been working in this, this nascent industry for, mm. for a long time. Uh, and the approach we take to safety to make sure that the Aurora driver can be trusted on the road. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it. You have people that have been pulled from autopilot work at Tesla. Obviously, yourself came from Waymo, which was Google's um, self-driving car project as well. So, And of course, Uber expertise as well. So you can combine all three. Um, You've said it, and I've read it um, in some of the releases that you've put out. You have three sensors, the LiDAR, the radar, and the cameras, and that that's actually the only way that you guys believe this can be safely deployed, the autonomous driving technology can be deployed. How does that compare to some of your competitors that are working in this space? Yeah, I think, I think the vast majority of people in the space believe, as we do, that you need to use a combination of different sensors uh, to see the world safely. And and really here, the, the thinking is that we're trying to build something that's incredibly safe on the road. And to do that, you want it to be robust. And so let's use the different modes. Uh, cameras can see color, for example. LiDAR, particularly our first light LiDAR, can see long range, and it can see precisely the shape of the world. Radar can penetrate things that maybe we couldn't see through with, with our human eyes. And so by bringing the three together, you can actually get to a point where you can trust the vehicle to drive safely on the road. I mean, we've been talking about autonomous driving technology, it seems, for years, and certainly on this show for the last three. And one of the things that always comes down to is data. You simply need to get those road miles in, check the data, understand how the system's working. I also read that you, by the end of this year, will have driven an on-the-road equivalent of 9 billion miles. Is that correct? And how much data is enough? 
Yeah. So for us, one of the really the, the deep insights we had coming into building Aurora was that you weren't going to get there by just brute force driving in the in the physical world. And so we've invested to build world class simulation technology that allows us to both simulate how the vehicle interacts with other vehicles, but simulate exactly the way that energy moves through the world so that we can model our LIDAR, model our radar, model our camera. And that allows us to have really, really high quality confidence that our system, when we put it on the road, it's going to work well. For example, when we started developing uh, the ability for the vehicle to turn left across traffic, we did over two million simulations, two million left turns uh, in the computer before we ever let the, the vehicle try that on the real world. And that gave us confidence again that it was going to work the way we wanted it to. Yeah, I mean, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? You, I expect that logistics perhaps is easier to deal with than transporting consumers, which is why you're saying, look, we're going to be able to remove the safety drivers by the end of 2023 for for the trucks and then a little bit later for the consumers. But just in practice, because at a time when we're talking about truck driver shortages in a lot of developed nations around the world, be it the United States or the UK, I think a lot of people looked at this and thought, wow, this is incredible and it's coming incredibly quickly. Can it interact with other vehicles seamlessly on the road as well because i do feel like as a as a driver myself if i saw a vehicle driving past me that had no driver i'd be nervous yeah i think you hit on really one of the real the the incredible value of propositions here is that the technology we're building can fit that fix that shortfall of of human drivers that we have in the u.s we're short sixty thousand drivers today and by the end of the decade we expect to be short 160,000. and so we expect the aurora driver to come to market and support uh, and, and work adjacent to the human-driven uh, vehicles that are out there. And yes, it, it has to work on the road with with other people. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we're not going to build special roads for this. Certainly, not anytime. <laughs> so, so it has to be able to to learn what it's like to drive like a person. And and that's really one of the again core technologies we're building at Aurora is this machine learning framework that allows us to go and drive the vehicles on the road, see how our our trained professionals would do it, and then have the vehicle uh, extrapolate from that how it should drive on the road well. And have regulators and other drivers on board as well and comfortable with this too. Are you confident of that timetable? Yeah, we're working very hard towards that timetable. We think it's reasonable. Uh, we work with regulators and policymakers today. It's been, again, one of the things I think we do well at Aurora is, is talk with the folks, uh, our partners in government, so they understand what, we're, what our approach is, they understand the value, and they understand the challenges. And that way, together, we can, we can see the social and societal change we think needs to happen here. Chris, I have a million more questions for you, but the most important one, and I have about 20 seconds, cost. What is it, what's the cost per truck or the cost per car of adopting this technology? Yeah, so, so today it's prototype, and so our vehicles are comparatively expensive, but we expect to deliver this to market with the same kind of total cost of ownership that, that a, a truck company faces today. Wow. Okay, we shall continue this conversation. I've answered about half my questions. Always the way. Great to chat to you. Thank you. Chris Ernson there, the CEO of Aurora. We'll speak soon. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. All this week, we'll be looking at the years of planning that have gone into delivering Expo 2020. The World Fair has been around for more than 170 years, and almost eight years ago, Dubai won the right to host this year's event. It's the first time the fair is being held in the Arab world. Now, amid a global pandemic, it's open to the public. Thank you. 
Maria Five, Claire, Dubai, and Sheila with the right to host Expo 2020. When it was announced, uh, the feeling of pride is, was indescribable. I could see the city, the entire city felt different, really. People were smiling, were happy, just really, really a celebration. It was so many mixed emotions. As celebrations continued across Dubai, attention quickly turned to finding a location to host a massive global event. So a few years ago, this site was sand with a single camel farm on it. From a desert oasis to building a vast new city, Ahmed Al-Khatib set about overseeing every aspect of its construction. This is the biggest I will be doing in my life. We have 23,000 workers working on site. We have about 45 uh, tower cranes. Also, we have moved around 5 million cubic meters of sand. Making it a success would be an enormous task. Hundreds of buildings needed to be constructed, posing numerous engineering and architectural challenges. In less than five years, we just like transformed to a city that has everything that anybody in the world wishes for. It's a city that is uh, about twice the size of Monaco. And it's just the scale of it. With key messages and clear aims, Dubai has set about bringing the world together by hosting 192 countries. The overall theme of the expo is connecting minds, creating the future, with the focus on the themes of mobility, opportunity and sustainability. Expo 2020 is aiming to focus on sustainability more than any other World Fair in history. And over the next six months, the latest innovations around this theme will be showcased to the event's millions of visitors. Eleni Jokas, CNN, Expo 2020, Dubai. And finally, here on First Move, no time to die. I tell you what, there's no time to count the millions pouring in at the box office. Daniel Craig's final outing as 007 took in $119 million over the weekend. And it's not even out in the United States or China yet. In the United Kingdom, it grossed more than a weekend in a weekend than any other Bond movie in the franchise. I had to reread that to make sure I was making sense. What an explosive end to Craig's 007 career. Congratulations to him. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, that's it. Stay safe and connect the world with Max Foxter is next. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.